0: Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Many of you guys are probably uh, familiar with some of the works of one of the great ancient philosophers named Plato, this Greek Athenian Plato was an interesting philosopher compared to the others because his style and the way that he communicated was very distinct. Unlike Aristotle, who often communicated with conditional statements or propositional statements of of thinking deeper and uh, thoughts of philosophy, Plato was centered more in narrative. He told stories. Uh, You could hear the, the Peloponnesian Wars and how the Athenians were impacted by uh, the the 30 tyrants. And and it's really interesting to read his thoughts as they come across as compared to a lot of the other other philosophers. But he liked to use these very rich, multifaceted images in his writings. Uh, One of the most famous of his images is the cave allegory illustration. You guys probably have heard of it before. Uh, Plato would describe uh, the educational system anybody's educational system as a dark cave. And he suggested that everybody is born into the world into this dark cave. It's not only that you live in a dark cave, but you're actually chained to the wall of the cave. And the only thing that you see before your eyes is is the reflection of a light on the back wall of the cave where shadows are cast upon the back wall. Uh, And these shadows are are cast by, by puppet masters, by people who want to teach you the things that they want to teach you, but nothing else. You have to put all the pieces together for yourself, and, and there really is no life outside of this dark cave. And so, the images that are cast, the shadows that are cast, tell stories. Uh, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a person of virtue? What are the gods that we worship as Athenians, even? And, of course, the cave is a metaphor for the educational system prisoners look upon the wall and and they are taught that these are the realities that we believe in. This is what it it means to be human. This is what it means to achieve something. This is what it means to to worship. Uh, But for Plato, he said that you had to, the essence of the the cave is to break out into the reality of the truth that exists outside of the cave, into the realm of, of what's real, to escape the shadows and the images. And there you will find the sun that gives life to things on the earth. There you will find reality as opposed to the images and the shadows. Education for Plato was was breaking out of the darkness into reality. It was liberation from the chains. It was freedom from the puppet masters that wanted to control the narratives and tell you only what they wanted you to know. The implication of the cave illustration is that some people don't really know that all they've seen their entire life, all they've been taught their entire life is the shadows. And so it was uh, the step of the philosopher, the deep thinkers, to move out past the shadows into, into reality. In Galatians chapter four, it's, it's a very similar allegory, it's a very similar metaphor. The Apostle Paul comes along to the Galatian believers who had truly trusted Christ. They'd heard the gospel from him. They'd become believers. But in many ways, they had been liberated from the cave. They came out of the darkness. They were freed from their chains. They heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. They saw what was real. Inside the cave, they had shadows. They had the law. And those shadows pointed to something of substance, but they weren't substance itself. When the Apostle Paul brought the truth of the Gospel, now they had reality, now they had the light of Christ. Now they could see what was behind everything, and what was behind what was, was what was real and what was true, and what was true was the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The most troubling aspect for the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 is that now these believers wanted to go back to the cave. After they had been liberated from the chains in the darkness, They willingly wanted to go back to the images and to the shadows, instead of growing closer to the reality of the gospel. So in Galatians 4, verse 12 through 31, Paul is convincing the Galatians, don't go back to the darkness, don't go back to the images. What I want you to see this morning is is the reality of the truth of the gospel, the realness and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we're just gonna talk about Uh, the greatest three things this morning as we go through the text. We're gonna talk about the greatest champions of the Gospel, messengers of the Gospel, the strongest challenge of the Gospel, and then the hardest convictions of the Gospel. The Gospel's greatest champions, its hardest challenge, and then its its greatest conviction, excuse me, the strongest challenge and the hardest conviction. Number one in your outline, number one this morning. Gospel-centered ministry has champions. And there are characteristics that define the greatest champions of effective gospel ministry. Once you look down at, at Galatians. Just read verses 12 through 20 here. Here's how the Apostle Paul starts. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible you have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Verse 17, they, speaking of the false teachers, make much of you, but of no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much for a good purpose, and not only when I am present present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Before we get into the details of this text, I want you to notice some things about Paul's tone in this passage. In chapter three, Paul came across as a very tough pastor. He said some things that were very difficult to hear. In fact, we could probably come up with a good, fair, strong assumption that he was upset at the Galatian believers. He was certainly disappointed in them. He couldn't believe that they were so quickly turning away from the true gospel. And so he addresses them in chapter three, verse one. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell over your eyes that now you wanna go back into the law? But now, here, when we pick this this passage up in in Galatians 4, verse 12, his tone is is different. Uh, Paul didn't call them fools, like he did in chapter three, verse one. He doesn't even call them hypocrites, like he did to Peter in Galatians chapter two. Instead, he addresses them as brothers. He doesn't give them the command of a superior officer. He doesn't make a demand on them. He's not harsh with his authority, He simply comes right alongside with a deep personal request from a friend, from a brother in Christ. And as he thought about the people that he was ministering to and as he thought about the Galatians, his appeal was much different in chapter four than it was in chapter three. And here's what he says. The first imperative almost in the entire book until we get right here in chapter four. He says, become like I am. And here's what he means by that. Galatian believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, imitate me. Become as I am. I have become as you are, which is really interesting. Paul was a Jew, and he decided that he was going to live his life free from the slavery of the law. So he says, listen, guys, I have become like you. I have become free from the slavery of the law. Now I want you to become like me, free from the slavery of the law. It shouldn't be that way. It's almost like the Gentiles should be saying that to Paul, but it's Paul saying that to the Gentile Galatian believers instead. He wants them to imitate his conduct, his lifestyles. He is following Christ. But but I want you to think about this because it's really interesting. Paul was a Paul was a Jew. He grew up in one of the um, the deepest, most uh, enduring, culture religious cultural people groups of the entire world. Even today, you have immediate thoughts that cross your mind when you think about Jewish people. You think about hospitality, and how great they are with food. If you've ever been to Israel, man, you will eat well when you go there. They're one of the most welcoming people that you could ever imagine. Paul grew up with customs and norms that were deeply rooted down to the core of who he was. Yet, for the sake of the gospel, he puts all of that to the side and effectively engages a culture that is completely different from him and from his. He figured out how to adopt and adapt to a culture that was not distinctly Jewish, but actually distinctly pagan. Always seeking a way to bring Christ in the message of the gospel, the grace message of the gospel, to the hearts of it and the ears of his listeners. I want you to listen really carefully. These aren't my words. I'm just going to read them for you. One of the telltale signs of a legalistic, traditional church is a mindset that is inflexible toward a culture where Scripture provides freedom and flexibility. One of the telltale signs of a legalistic, traditional church is a mindset that is inflexible to a culture where Scripture actually presents freedom and flexibility, and instead of celebrating the freedom in a culture people will impose their own personal cultural norms above and beyond the norms of what scripture would have us to do establishing a pride of place my people group is better than your people group my culture is better than your culture and so if you need to if you were going to come to my church you need to adapt my cultural norms my cultural principles my cultural traditions A ministry empowered by the gospel is one that is flexible with everything that doesn't threaten the gospel. A ministry that is empowered by the gospel is one that is flexible with everything that doesn't threaten the truth of the gospel and the truth of scripture. And so here's what we need to say right off the bat. Pick your battles well. Understand the hills that you're going to die on in a culture. To effectively reach them with the grace message of the gospel. The first mark... of a a champion of the gospel of Christ, from Paul, is that he is this. He is culturally flexible with his interactions and his engagement in the culture. Number two, there's more. Unlike many pastors today, the Apostle Paul was not tall, tan, and terrific. In fact, he was short, sickly, and probably senile instead. What exactly was Paul's sickness in this context? Was it malaria? Was it epilepsy? Is the sickness that he's talking about here in in verse 15, does it have to do with this this eye problem that he has later on in in the passage? We don't know. We don't know exactly what he was suffering with. But we do know this. We know for sure he was not trying to hide his weaknesses as a minister of the gospel. He wasn't trying to present a, a more impressive stature He wasn't trying to come across with a a false image, or maybe even a pretense. Paul was Paul, and when you listened to Paul and when you saw Paul, you were going to get the Apostle Paul, no matter if he was sightly, no matter if he was sick, no matter if he was unimpressive. He was much more concerned about what was on the inside and in the hearts of his listeners and himself than what was on the outside. He didn't have this thought that image is everything. He had this thought that reality and being sincere was much more important as a messenger of the gospel. Paul was unimpressive. And here's the the second mark of a champion of the gospel who ministers the gospel, at least in this passage. Champions of the gospel are personally vulnerable. They are, number one, culturally flexible. Number two, they are personally vulnerable in their actions and in their images. Y'all remember, a, uh, y'all remember a show, Simon Cowell, American Idol? It was on TV for it. He, Biggs, y'all are laughing. If you do not come back next week for Father's Day for any other reason, you need to come back for the video that was shot between John Biggs and Mark Gullickson. This is gonna be high comedy for you guys, by the way, for Father's Day seeing you guys laughing out there. Um, Here's what I loved about Simon, and here's what America loved about Simon Cowell. He didn't care who he offended. He didn't really care how his words came across. He just, he said what was true. He said what what was true, no matter how painful, no matter how hurtful he came across. One of my favorite lines from Simon Cowell. If you had lived 2,000 years ago and sung like that, I think they might have stoned you. Simon was a very truthful judge, on American idol. Now, I hear many people, and, and, and I'm disturbed in many ways by our culture here, because I hear many people today, do you know John 3.16 is no longer the, the most popular quoted verse on social media and, and around America? The most popular quoted verse now is, is Matthew chapter 7. Do not judge, lest ye be judged. And I hear a lot of people quoting things in from the Bible and even claiming to be Christians using the Matthew 7s, the the gentle, the humble Jesus, the one who is accepting and welcoming of of everybody and everything. I don't hear a lot of people quoting Galatians 4, verse 16. This is not one you're going to see on anybody's refrigerator anytime soon. Most people don't write this on a note card and sit under a tree and go memorize that verse. Amen? Amen. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth, Galatians? I'm telling you something that's very hurtful. It's probably, it's going to be a hard truth. Am I now your enemy for telling you what other people should have told you a long time ago in your walk with Christ? What people do is um, have a pick-and-choose Christianity, We have verses that we quote that we like about Jesus, and we we take all of these Galatians 4.16 verses, and we just don't pay any attention to those. What we end up up with is is a Jesus on our own terms. We end up with our own personal Jesus, a Jesus who can never contradict us, a Jesus who can never say anything hard to us personally at our heart. A Jesus who always accepts us and never wants to transform us more and more into His image, no matter what the cost. And any of you who are married, if you're going to be in love with another person, you open yourself up to being hurt by them. You are vulnerable to them. If we're going to call ourselves Christ followers, we have to be vulnerable and open not only to the things that are easy to hear from Scripture, but also to the things that are hard to hear. Gospel the champions of the gospel, holding on to the Ephesians 4, 15s, and the the speaking the truth in love, are lovingly truthful. The third characteristics of, of those who champion the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, is that they are lovingly truthful. And I want you to listen to this quote from Paul Tripp. It's a book that we've been reading with our staff here at TBC. He says this, the truth is we fail to confront, not because we love others too much, but because we love ourselves too much. The Apostle Paul loves others well. And because of that, he is a lovingly truthful messenger of the gospel. Fourth characteristic, verse 17. Let's go to read that one. It says, They make much of you, speaking of the false teachers, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. Now, the Greek word make much is with the ESV, it's, it's actually zealous. And zealous occurs at the, at the front of verse 17 and also at the very end of it. Most of your translations really do miss what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that these false teachers were zealous to win over their listeners, to win over the Galatians. He said that they were zealous to puff them up. Zealous for the wrong reasons or for the wrong purpose. They were tickling their ears and telling them what they wanted to hear. They were flattering them in hopes that the Galatian believers would turn around and flatter those teachers right back and tell them what they wanted to hear. There's a difference between false teachers and true messengers of the gospel, champions of the gospel in this passage. False teachers want to receive their own glory. Paul wants to give glory to Christ. False teachers want their names to be known. Paul wants Christ's name to be known. False teachers want ministry to be about them. Paul wants ministry to be about Jesus. He wants to be less of me and more of him, just like John the Baptist would have said. The fourth mark of a messenger of the gospel at the beginning of this passage, champions are genuinely selfless. The greatest champions of gospel-centered ministry are culturally flexible, personally vulnerable, lovingly truthful, and genuinely selfless. In their ministry for the gospel of Christ. Number two in your outline. The strongest challenge of the gospel. Strongest challenge. Uh, look down at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Verse 24. Now, this may be inter- interpreted allegorically, and we're, we're gonna talk about that in just a second. Now, Paul, Paul has rooted everything that he's about to say in this passage in the Gospel on the history of Abraham. And many of you guys know this story just because it's so famous from the book of Genesis. At the age of 86, Abraham was married to Sarah. They still had no children, and yet God had given them all of these great promises that from him would come forth a multitude of nations and that his family would bless all the other families on the face of the earth. At At age 86, finally there's no one, there's no heir to the family. And so Sarah, Abraham's wife, says, you know what, here's my Egyptian handmaid. I want you to go into her that through her maybe a seed will be born that we can experience the promises and the blessings of God. And so through Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian handmaid, Ishmael, is born. Thirteen years later, Abram is 99 years old, God appears to him again and says, listen, it's not through Hagar that the child of promise is gonna come, it's actually through your wife, Sarah. She's gonna, she is gonna conceive of a child and give birth. It's gonna be a miraculous birth. And his son, his name was Isaac. In the background of Genesis, all we're getting through here is, is Abraham's family, and it's very significant. Remember, Paul was facing uh, tons of opposition in his ministry from the false teachers. And there is no doubt in my mind that one of the accusations that they were making against Paul was that he and his followers were not true children of Abraham. If you're gonna be an Israelite, a Hebrew, you have to be related to Abraham's family. And the response from the Apostle Paul is, ah, but remember, Abraham had two sons one of the slave woman and one of the free woman, Ishmael and Isaac, and these two sons are actually, by allegorically speaking, they are two ways of relating to God. There are two ways of of having salvation from God, and there are two ways of being related to Abraham. There's a right way of being related to Abraham, and there is a wrong way. There is a right way to approach God, and there is a wrong way according to the Apostle Paul. Verse 24. This may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, the Sinai covenants and the promise to Abraham. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present-day Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem above is free. She is her mother, for it is written, you guys remember this text from Easter by the way? Isaiah 54? That must have been a terrible sermon on Easter Sunday. It's like, what? Isaiah 54? Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one, Sarah, will be more than those of who has a husband. Uh, Quoting from Isaiah chapter 54 in that passage. Augustine did the same thing that the Apostle Paul did when he wrote his his book, City of God. And he compares two women to two cities. Hagar is earthly Jerusalem. Sarah is heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem is enslaved to the law. The heavenly Jerusalem is free. The heavenly Jerusalem is the one of promise. And Paul quotes here, he finishes this passage, verse 27, by going to Isaiah chapter 54, verse one. In Isaiah 54, to understand exactly what's going on, you really have to go back in the context of that passage. Remember, Isaiah 54 was written to Israelites, to Judah, who were either in captivity in Babylon, they were exiled, or they were about to be in captivity, to Nebuchadnezzar and to the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem, rode into the city, destroyed the city, burned its gates and its walls with fire, and took everything out of the temple. He trampled everything. And he took a whole bunch of Hebrews back with him to Babylon to be their slaves and to do the work that they didn't want to do in Babylon. These exiles of Israel in Babylon, they were disobedient failures. They experienced exile as as judgment from God for failing to submit to his laws and to, to faithfully carry out the covenant that God had given them through Moses. These exiles were weak They were enslaved to a nation that was not their own, to a different king. They were hopeless and they were helpless to do anything about it. They had no home of their own and they had no hope of ever coming back to Jerusalem in in exile. And a drastic change of circumstance and hope comes from God through the Isaiah prophet in Isaiah 54. To a group of hopeless and helpless exiles In Babylon. Here's what he says. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Remember Sarah? Remember the promise that I gave to Abraham in Genesis? Rejoice. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one, Sarah, will be more than those of of he who has a husband, Hagar, in this situation. Hagar is mentioned, I want to point out, by name, in verse 24 and verse 25. Sarah, interestingly in this passage, she is never mentioned by name. We know that she is mother, she is free woman, she is the barren one, and she is the desolate one. This comparison is is much more concerned about her social status. Uh, She is free, she is not a slave. And her circumstance, she is barren, she has no children. What Paul is doing is is contrasting two ways of approaching God, of connecting to God through salvation. Hagar's son represents salvation by works. What you do in your efforts to earn a right standing before God, which will always fall short. Sarah represents salvation by grace. It's through promise and what Christ has done for us that we have everlasting life because it is by grace through faith as the only way that we can connect to an all-holy God. Um, Brandy and I got married um, 17 years ago, I think. We're 17, 18 years, something like that this year. Uh, Coming at the end of August, 2004. Somebody do the math for me. 17, right? 17 years, Um, we very quickly realized the strongest challenges that we were going to face in our marriage. And you guys who've been married for a long time know exactly the things that I'm talking about. Um, before we got married, Brandy knew that my heart was to go to seminary, felt a call to, to go into pastoral ministry and and ministry, full-time ministry of some type, at least at the time. And And so I had options that were laid out before me, and the guy that mentored me at Mississippi State, discipled me for five or six years, was a Dallas Seminary grad. And he said, there are other seminaries in the United States of America that are great seminaries, but none of the other seminaries compare to Dallas Seminary. So if you're really gonna go to seminary, you go to Dallas. And he was was being facetious, of course. These other schools are really good schools, too. But I'm a pretty frugal guy. I learned, uh, You know what the bird said when it flew over my dad? Cheap, 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 cheap. Same thing it says when it flies over Sears kind of thing. And I was looking at seminary costs and I was thinking to myself, there is no way on the planet that I will ever be able to afford Dallas Seminary. And so we started looking into the Southern Baptist schools. You get half off the discounted tuition. Daniel, you and I were talking about this not too long ago. Um, man, why wouldn't I just go to Southern? Why wouldn't I just go to Southwestern and, instead of Dallas Seminary? And, and we really had to work through um, a deep and somewhat of a pestering issue in our marriage. And it's been my failure to really trust God and prayerfully expect for Him to show up in our times of need, in our times of um, even financial need through this. What happened in the, in the process of seminary, we, we went through and I went to Southwestern. I did the campus tour. I got accepted to their school. I went and I looked for a job even. I drove over to Fort Worth and tried to find a job before we were about to move out there. And, and that summer, the, the whole time that this was going on, I didn't realize this, and kids in the congregation, here's, here's the moral of the story. Never go against a praying mother or a praying wife okay, you will find yourself sorely disappointed. Uh, Brandy was, was behind the scenes praying the whole, th- the whole time. She was just saying, God, wherever you want us to be, open those doors. Make that path very evident for us. And over and over again in our marriage, husbands, uh, I'm certain I'm not the only one who's experienced this. There's a tendency to, to look to my own will instead of to God's will. To my own ways instead of God's ways. To my own means of working out this problem that's in front of me instead of just asking God to show the, show the solution that we might walk faithfully in those things. The strongest challenge to the gospel and to a strong gospel ministry, whether it's in your personal life, in your family life, or even in our church life, and even believers will struggle with this. This is why it's what Daniel said to begin this service is so critical. We believe in the precedence of the gospel as a core value at TBC. We make decisions based on the lie that we have the ability to fix our greatest problems, the enduring challenge for us over and over again is that we truly believe that we can rescue ourselves, that we can save ourselves, and that we can actually become our own saviors. Our problems are not so deep. After all, we can fix this. We can dig down and we can figure out how to make it through. They're not too difficult that we can't overcome it. Dig down deep and dig your heels in. By sleeping with Hagar, Here's what Abraham was doing. Abraham was looking to himself as the solution for his deepest problems. He thought that he was going to figure out the way to give birth to the child of promise instead of relying on God and God's ways. This was a self-salvation project from the get-go. And instead of resting and entrusting completely in God, he goes to his own abilities, to his own reason, to his own thinking, Apart from Christ, only autonomous and always independent, we are completely helpless to do anything about our situations. and It is out of our control. Bob LaPine is a, a great quote in Family Life Ministries. He says this. I've shared it with you before. He says, at the root of all sin is a preoccupation for self at the root of all sin and and at a barrier to the gospel for any church family, is unbelief. We stop believing in the power of God and in the truth of the gospel and how he showed up for us in the past, and we start believing in ourselves instead. This is a a huge reversal when you look at Galatians chapter 4. It's not the woman who has the son that's going to deliver the people of Israel. It's the woman who's been barren and has no chance of ever conceiving on her own ability through Abraham. The gospel is not just for the fertile Hagar's. The gospel is for the barren Sarah's of the world. And actually, the gospel is for those who are broken, who have nowhere to turn, to help themselves, or to find salvation in anything from themselves. The only place that they have to turn is upward to a holy God who is the only person that can do anything about their situation. The greatest challenge to the gospel for us, for our families, and for our church family is ourselves and the, th- and the fact of thinking that we can solve our deepest issues. The gospel also has a very hard conviction. A very hard conviction. And before we read these verses, let me just tell you, these are hard verses to read. I've seen this passage in a way that I've never seen it before. And and so let's just read the end of the chapter here. Verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted... Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so also it is now. Uh, Many people with an Ishmael spirit persecute the Isaacs in churches, and it's it's an issue, so much so that the Apostle Paul brings it up. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we are of the free woman. I want you to turn back to Genesis chapter 21. This is an interesting passage. Turn turn your Bibles, hold your place in Galatians chapter 4. Turn back to Genesis chapter 21. It's hard to believe that this passage is in here, but it is, so we'll read it see what it has to say. Um, Skip down to verse 7. Genesis 21, verse 7. She said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Verse 8. And the child grew grew and, and he was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And so she said to Abraham, Cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir. A little harsh. I feel like that's a little harsh. Does it seem harsh? Should not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Skip down to verse 12. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. And wives, you guys go home and put this one on the refrigerator. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. The successful key to a great marriage. Just do whatever she says. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you for through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a great nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. Ishmael is going to inherit the promises of God at some level, uh, just like Isaac inherited the, the promises. Just a, it's a little bit of a different fulfillment there. Verse 14, So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. She departed, wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba, almost comes close, close to death. Actually, Hagar is going to put Ishmael in a shaded place and walk away from her as she watches her infant, her, her baby son, die in the wilderness. And that's when God stops Hagar from doing it. Very interesting, interesting story, Genesis chapter 21. Cast out the slave woman, throw her out. What does this word mean? The lexicon, the first place that, or the uh, Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the first place we see this word, cast out, is Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Know what's happening there? Who cast out who? God cast out the man and the woman from the Garden of Eden, and he drove them, the text says, out of the garden. So much so, he didn't want them to return that he stations cherubim with flaming swords so that they don't enter back into the garden into the presence of God because it, it would kill them. The Israelites command are commanded to drive out, cast out their enemies from the promised land, a forceful military expansion of them experiencing the promises and the blessing of God in the land that God has given them. To cast out, it means this, if you look it up, It means to expel or to force to leave. This is the word that Jesus used in the Gospels when he cast out the money changers from the temple. This is the word that is used to describe Jesus casting out a demon from a demon-possessed man. This is a forceful driving out. This is the word from Acts chapter seven when Stephen is driven out of the city so that they can stone him to death. This is the word that sailors used in Acts 27 when the ship is about to go uh, run into the ground, and they started throwing everything overboard so they wouldn't hit the ground and just the ship be destroyed in a second. There might have uh, have been a stronger word for Paul to use, to cast out the slave woman, but this is the one that he selects, this is the passage that he goes to in in Galatians chapter four, verse 30. What's the implication, what's the principle? When you see legalism happening in a church, cast it out. This is not something to mess around with in a gospel-believing church. Legalism will destroy and kill any church which it is allowed to thrive in. And so we do things that sound a little a little harsh in order to protect our body from the enslaving nature of legalism, so much so that we forcefully cast it out of the church to preserve the gospel of grace in a strong message to the barren ones, to the desolate, and to the broken. Charles Sumner was a senator from Massachusetts during the United States Civil War. Uh, He was a lawyer, he was a great statesman, He became an orator and and just a champion of anti-slavery. On November 5th, 1864, Sumner made a speech and he captured the sentiment of the Civil War so well. And he said this, where slavery is, there liberty cannot be. Where liberty is, there slavery cannot be. It was very close to Patrick Henry's, uh, give me liberty or give me death, in terms of the United States. I find it incredibly strange, incredibly strange, what's happening in our country today in terms of liberty and freedom. Um, In the Civil War, we fought each other for freedom and for liberty. In the history of the United States, we've fought in other countries for the sake of liberty and freedom. We have made allies with other countries that make a strong stance on freedom and we have promised to support them in financial and military ways that are unimaginable because of how much we care about freedom. But when it comes to freedom in the church, sometimes it feels like we give up without a fight. S. Lewis Johnson uh, is a professor at Dallas Seminary, and he just has a, a warning for churches It's one of the most serious problems facing the Orthodox Christian church today is the problem of legalism. One of the most serious problems facing the church in Paul's day was the problem of legalism. And every day, it has been the same. Legalism wrenches the joy of the Lord from the Christian believer. And with the joy of the Lord goes power for vital worship and vibrant service. Nothing left but cramped, somber, dull, listless profession of the faith. What do we what do we do with this? This is not a this is not the last time we're going to talk about freedom, in Galatians. This, this won't be uh, this is far from the last time we'll talk about grace and freedom in the gospel and how it impacts our lives, at TBC. Uh, but I do want to end with just a couple principles, today. First is this: any theology that rests on salvation, through any small ounce of human performance is not good news, but bad information. Any message of the gospel that relies on the smallest amount of human performance for salvation is not good news, it's actually bad information. The gospel of Jesus Christ is so strongly connected to what he has done for us, not what we can do for him, that freedom and faith have to go together to support and to champion this message of the gospel that we so desperately need and hold on to and to proclaim as a Bible believing church right here in Tulsa. Human wisdom and energy of the flesh will always fail. It will always fail in our attempts to save ourselves. It is the gospel, it is the truth of who God is and what we need from Him that endures. It is the truth of the gospel that brings us into the church and into a Christian of life. It is the truth of the gospel that carries us through the Christian life. At any point in our life, the things that we struggle with the most are related to the truths of the gospel. We are called to believe in Jesus and what he has done for us. We are called to carry that same faith throughout our life, trusting that he is the solution to our problems. He is the answer. And even if he doesn't show up in any specific circumstance, we know that he has given us everlasting life, and so we can face any circumstance with courage. We can suffer well because of the truth of the gospel. A theology that rests its salvation on any ounce of human performance is not good news. It is bad information. And at Tulsa Bible Church, we preach the good news because it's not about what we do. The good news is about what's been done for us by Jesus. The good news is that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man and died on the cross for us. It's through his shed blood that we have forgiveness of sins. It's through what God the Father has done for us by sending his son that we have everlasting life. Our responsibility is to simply trust what's been done for us, and it's a gift. It's a gift. We simply receive that gift by faith. Uh, Number two, Embrace life beyond the letter. Embrace life beyond the letter. And what I mean by that is is to enjoy and harness a vibrant spiritual life that moves beyond the letter of the law, beyond the rules and the regulations that are no longer fit for a child of God who walks by the Spirit. I want you to turn, this is the last passage we'll look at, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 we'll end on this one. Turn to Second Corinthians chapter three. Look down at verse four. Second Corinthians three verse four: "Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God." Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Um, Paul Paul was not your typical pastor. He was not your typical church planter. Paul was not polished and professional. He was authentic, and he was accountable. His ministry emphasized personal relationships and vulnerability and coming alongside of others with the truth of the gospel and suffering with them. I'm saying this as a warning, not just for TBC people, just anybody who's listening that would come in contact with TBC's gospel message here. I regularly, regularly meet people who have come out of strict fundamentalist backgrounds. And they have been bruised and wounded by people who point their finger at this verse from the law, this thing that you're not doing, this way that you're not measuring up, and they have turned away from the, from the church because of it. They have been judged. They have been condemned. Maybe, in some essence, there's a guilty conscience and God can still work through that. They were bruised and wounded because people were pointing to the law and they were not fulfilling it. In rapid, rapid fire, harsh manners, scripture after scripture after scripture, and here's what it produced in their hearts and in their lives, a legalistic approach to God. And they have come away with the feeling that they are not welcomed at TBC, they're not welcomed at any church that preaches the gospel because their life is not good enough for it. Here's what I want to say at TBC. The law of the Lord is perfect in converting the soul. It tells us where we fall short. It tells us where we don't measure up use the law to to show people that according to the standard that God has given us, according to the perfect person of Jesus Christ, all of us will consistently fall short in our life. And that's why we desperately need a Savior. And if you don't follow up those admonitions of of law and what you find as, as regulations in Scripture where you're not measuring up with the truth of grace in the gospel and what Jesus has done for us? Because after all, none of us will ever measure up to the perfect standard of Jesus and the perfect standard of the law. If you don't follow that up, you will be a legalistic, judgmental person that is going to push people away from the church because you're saturated in a legalistic, law-based mentality rather than grace to the barren ones and to the desolate. The law will drive us to our need for God, but it has to be followed up with the truth of grace from the gospel of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion, what he's done for us. And at TBC, here's what I want us to emphasize more than anything else. What Jesus has done for us is the good news. People will never know that until they know how short they fall of the standard but it has to be there to be a strong gospel-based church, Christ-centered church, and a church where people find grace for the barren. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, um, themes of freedom, liberation, and the truth of the gospel are so thick through Galatians. We pray that they would land softly on our hearts. They would land softly on my heart this morning. Uh, give us wisdom as we leave from here. Give us the ability to um, go to your word and, and to show people and teach people the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ with much compassion and, and gentleness as we make a defense for the faith that is in us. Give us the wisdom to know when to be stern with people and, and where they, they fall short of your perfect standard. Give us grace and compassion to know when to bring the gospel into that equation and show them the truth of Jesus and who he is. Lord, help the message of of the gospel of Jesus Christ to be saturated in everything that we do at TBC because we value the truth of it. We know our need for it, and we see the beauty of it. God, we ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit for you three are the one true God and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.